I am saved by the blood, by the blood of the Lamb. And I am saved by the grace of the great I am. Should I stumble or fall, I'll rise again after all I am saved by the blood of the Lamb. And I am healed by the stripes that they placed in his flesh yes i am healed i am healed i will always confess though my symptoms deceive no matter what i believe i am healed by the blood of the Don't give in, don't you doubt. Rest in him, that's what it's about. He took your sin, he paid the price. Accept your sacrifice. And I am saved by the blood, by the blood of the land and I am healed by the grace of the great I am should I stumble or fall I'll rise again after all I am healed and I am saved by the blood don't give in don't you doubt rest in him that's what it's about he took your sins he paid the price accept your sacrifice so i am saved by the blood, by the blood of the Lamb. And I am healed by the grace of the great I am. Should I stumble or fall, I'll rise again after all I am and I am saved by the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is that glow Some precious things that Brother Branham said along that line. You know, he says, when you kneel down and pray to God, he said, he doesn't even see you. He only hears your voice coming through the blood. Because we are sin, but he doesn't look on it. All he sees is the blood. That was one of them. And then the other one, Scripture says, you know, that we cannot sin. And Brother Branham, you know, when you take that, just without understanding, you think, but I make mistakes. But he says, how can you sin when you're covered by the blood? God can't see it. Amen. What a precious God we have. What a precious God. We're still continuing our Bible study, Revelations chapter 21. By the way, next Wednesday, how many remember Brother Philip Mawugbi? You all remember him? Yeah, he's going to be with us. He's, he's driving in from Chicago He's there on business, and he's going to drive down on Wednesday and be with us and be with us through, through Sunday, and then he goes back again. So I think he's going to, he started ministering up in Edmonton, you know, so he's going to be speaking for us, uh, you know. I think that'll be a real joy. I hope he tells you a little bit of his testimony. God has so blessed him up there. It's just wonderful. Revelation 21, you remember now what we're doing, we're just doing a, 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 a yeah, this is a Thursday night Bible study, home Bible study at church on Wednesday night. So there, there we go. Revelation 21.1, we covered this, but we'll read just a little bit. We covered it last time. 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We found out the new heaven, uh, new earth, and the first heaven and first earth were passed away. The first heaven was a millennium. And then the first earth is this earth, as we know it, passed away into a new form. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. You may be seated. Hold your Bible open to Revelation 21 because we're going to read scriptures and talk about them and read scriptures and talk about them. So we'll be going that direction. I see good Brother Franco's already got my slide up there. So the new Jerusalem that we're talking about, of course, that is our, our future home. And uh, God has gone to prepare a place for us. And 
It is so magnificent, I can't get my head around it. I'll tell you, when he describes it, what is transparent gold? I mean, my goodness, it's just, it's just too big for my understanding, but I'm sure we'll be awed beyond understanding. So we're at the place in Scripture now. This is after the millennium. You'll see on your notes, we're just going to be following along there. It's part of it. I'll be reading to you part of it. We'll be ad-libbing. And then it says, The earth has, has its final purging by the fires of 2 Peter 3.12, which is written here, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and elements shall melt with a fervent heat. So the day of God, we found out, was going into eternity. The day of the Lord is going into the tribulation and the tribulation. The day of God is going into eternity. And then the Second Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So there's many places in the scripture that speak of a new heaven and a new earth, Isaiah and Peter and Revelation and some other places. And of course, all those it says, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And again, if you look in the mirror and say, do I qualify? Eh, nobody does. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, we qualify. We put on, we put on his robe of righteousness. For, because the scripture says here, for he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the very righteousness of God in him. That righteousness of God, I mean, not, I mean just, uh, can you, you, I can't get my head around that either. But nevertheless, it's wonderful. So this, this new Jerusalem we're looking at is the headquarters for the king and queen, the bride of Christ. And then Revelations 21, 2, just to remind you now as we continue on. And I, John, and I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we're just going to keep reading because it is... Uh, I have to admit, there's a part of it I, I really just flat don't understand. Some of it is so magnificent that I can't imagine how beautiful it's going to be. But other part, I just flat don't understand. But we'll talk about what we do understand and continue on from there. So verse 3 now. And I heard a great voice out of, the, out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and, and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So I want, I, I, I mentioned it last time, but I, but I want to, I want to emphasize here that the God himself being with us is a new thing. We have the Holy Spirit with us. That's an office of God. We had Jesus Christ dying for us. That was God in flesh. But God himself, the same in spirit form that came down to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we haven't had anything to do with that. We've had something to do with this office and that office and that office, but this is all of him all wrapped up in one spirit bundle. And then as we read in Corinthians 15 last time, he he has condescended down into time to deal with sin and, while dealing with sin, reveal his attributes. To do that, the invisible spirit had to become visible, and that's where Christ comes in. He becomes the visible form of the invisible God. But you can see then that the forms in which he has been known are Christ, but not actually 
God himself as what you're experiencing. Are you staying with me? Because he's had to step into something through which to make himself known. And then in eternity, he will still speak through the Son, because the Son will be sitting as the Son of David on the throne. But, but as Corinthians, uh, five, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so God has been in Christ doing this work of revealing of himself and redeeming all of his subjects, all of his predestinated ones. Then now, once that work is finished, then Christ gives the whole kingdom back over to God. You can read it, 2 Corinthians 15, no, 1 Corinthians, I guess it is 15. Then Christ gives it back over to God then because I've finished the work, Father. He could say, I've finished the work. And so he says, great, take your place as the son of David. And so then he sits down on his own throne and that spirit of God that has been declaring himself for moves back into the form of the pillar of fire. And as Brother Branham described it, said he'll always be there over the throne as Jesus is the mouthpiece, but the Father's always there. And this is the age where that, where it says that, that everything has now become God. And as we go through this, you'll see more and more how everything now becomes God, because God is the only form of the eternal, and we're moving into the eternal. So it all has to be something out of or part of God, because only God is eternal. Uh, it's, it's almost too magnificent to get a hold of. So God is with men. And then it's got the scriptural reference there, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. You can read that, what we just talked about. So finally, the last Adam and his Eve are back to Eden, back in fellowship with Jehovah Elohim, and then the Lord God that came down in the cool of the day with his children. So now that's as far as we got last Wednesday. And then uh, in, in verse 21, 5, it says, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And so all things new, when you start kind of searching this out, we find out in the, in the all things new as the new number, usual numerology of God, I found, we find seven of them. So there is a new heaven, one. Number two, there is a new earth. Number three, there is a new relationship in that God himself, not in the office of the Holy Ghost, but God himself, shall be with them. This almost sounds like I'm preaching a trinity, but I hope you can keep that separated out. And then number four, the new Jerusalem, the Lamb's wife, which we'll see. Then number five, the new temple, the Lamb is the temple, that's verse 22. And then the new light, the glory of God and the Lamb is the light. There's no sun and no moon there, it says. And then, and then uh, chapter 22 describes a new paradise. So we find all these new, new, new things as we start moving into this realm called the, called the eternal. And then also in, in verse 5, it makes another statement. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And so that true and faithful kind of springs a, a line, of, line of thinking. And so on your notes there, on, uh, I printed my notes from home. Yours may be slightly different than mine. So it, they sometimes get changed a little when they get printed here at the church. So Revelations 3.14 says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now the beginning of the creation of God, you remember Brother Bram said that was the beginning of God creating himself in flesh. 
It was the beginning of the creation of a super race. It was the beginning of the creation of a God-in-flesh race. That was the very first God-in-flesh uh, creation was Jesus Christ. And then we are the offspring of that coming right on down as more and more and more are by one spirit baptized into that very same God-in-flesh body, which is the body of Christ. And then Revelations 19, 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat on him was called faithful and true. So we see each time with this faithful and true thing, it's tied to our Lord Jesus. And then uh, for me, it's on the top of page three now, Revelations 22, six. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And we happen to be in that age where God is showing us what's going on. People have probed at the book of Revelation all through the ages, probed at it, probed at it, but it was a time capsule and couldn't be opened until this last day during the voice of the seventh angel when the mystery of God should be finished. So it couldn't be finished till this age. So we're in the age to see the unveiling of the book of Revelation. If you've ever bought other books on the book of Revelation where there's not a prophetic ministry behind it, uh, you'd be amazed at the conjectures they can come up with. God bless them, they're trying, but, it, but they're just so far off the word. So the faithful, faithful and true now, you, you'll see a couple definitions there that were about the words true and faithful. So faithful equals sure or true, and the same word is also translated a believer. So faithful, trusty, faithful, of persons who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties, one who kept his plighted faith. You know, we always use that word plighted in the marriage vows. Worthy of trust that can be relied on. I would say that applies to our Lord Jesus, wouldn't you? Absolutely, absolutely faithful. And then true, it's, a, it's used, the same word is used, as you can see, 27 times. That which has not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name in every respect corresponding to the idea signified by the name, real, true, genuine. And so that could say, if I've got a genuine dollar bill, or if I've got a genuine Jesus Christ, I've got a genuine Lord and Savior, it, it, it's all that, that true. It's, and then uh, it says that the opposite of that which is fictitious or counterfeit or imaginary or simulated or pretended. That certainly is not our Lord. And so we can see that he is the true and faithful one. Now let's go to uh, verse 6 and 7. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, when, it's, when here he says it is done, I mean, how, how magnificent all the work of redemption that's been going on through the ages. Now the culmination has come. And, and it's almost like Jesus, the, our Savior, can heave a sigh of relief and says, we have arrived. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We remember the bride in the last chapter offers that to whosoever will. Verse 7. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. When I read that term, all things, I couldn't help but think about that other portion of all things there in Revelation, where in, uh, in the middle of page 3 on my notes, 
It says, inherit all things. The New Testament promise now comes to the full, Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So we have that freely, excuse me, to receive here. The things that Brother uh, Tim was, was singing about with salvation and healing, all those things are ours, freely, freely given to us and all these manifestations. But here now, finally, we move, move into the position of being with Christ, having inherited that which was promised to the meek, the earth. And then verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Now, last our last session, I went through the, the, you remember the many quotes I gave you to show you the assurance of what it is to recognize what Jesus is in your day and what a privilege that is to recognize what Jesus is doing in your day and what it signifies is on the inside of you called a little thing called predestinated life. And so that there is the assurance. Now, he that overcometh, we're going to swing a little bit on the other side. You're going to get a little bit of admonishing now. And I was reading just last night out of the book called The Marriage of the Lamb. And Brother Branham, there he, uh, whoops, what did I do with my book? Excuse me, did I not bring it out? How disastrous. Hey, would somebody run back and grab it off the day? Oh, no, here it is, here it is, here it is, sorry. So like, where's my glasses when they're up in the head here? Okay, I wonder, I'm going to read to you now. This is out of The Marriage of the Lamb, and I'm starting on page 6, paragraph 27. So just kind of listen to me, because I don't have this printed out in here. So, so it's a little bit lengthy, but it so spoke to me. I hope it'll speak to you also. We know there is going to be a bride, and there's going to be a wedding supper served in the sky. That's just as sure to be as God is, because it's His Word. And we know that those things that are going to make up that bride are going to be his church, and they're, they're going to appear before him without spot or wrinkle. And they have the material on earth now to make themselves ready. Now, if you notice, he said, she has made herself ready. So many says, if the Lord will just take this evil spirit from me, from drinking or gambling or lying or stealing, I'll serve him. But that's up to you. You've got to do, got something to do too. They that overcome shall inherit all things. They that overcome, you have the power to do it, but you must be willing to lay it down. See, she has made herself ready. I like that word, you see. God could not push us through a little pipe, pull us out the other end, and then say, blessed is he that overcomes. You had nothing to overcome. He just pushed you through. But you've got to make decisions for yourself. I have to make decisions for myself. In doing that, we show our faith and respect to God. Israel was promised a promised land, but they had to fight for every inch of it. Wherever the soles of your feet tread upon, that have I given you, God said to Joshua. It was all there. The land was there. God gave it to them, but they had to fight for it. The same way it is with divine healing. God's got the power to heal you. And if you've got the courage to accept it, but you'll fight every inch of the way, God's amazing grace to save you. He will do it, but you'll fight every inch of your way. I've been behind the pulpit going on 31 years, and every inch of that has been a fight constantly. It certainly has. 
but we must fight if we must reign. So we find out that the bride has to make herself ready, ready, be willing to lay aside every weight that does so easily beset us that we might run with patience the race that sets before us. We must lay them aside ourselves. We can't say, God, you come lay them aside for us. We've got to do that ourselves. There will be a wedding supper. How we love to think of sitting across the table from each other and shaking one another's hands, tears running down our cheeks, and to think he will come around, wipe all the tears away, say, don't cry, it's all over, enter into the joys of the Lord that's been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Oh, brother, that will make us love one another even more. It's the individuals in the church that makes up the bride now. I'm going to see those barriers of indifference breaking down. I'm glad to see those barriers of indifference breaking down and the great church of God being beginning to merge itself together in fellowship means that the wedding is coming nearer now and the stones are peculiar cut as they may be. They got a place somewhere in that building if they're the stones of the Lord. Now the earthly marriage here is a type of the heavenly marriage. The first thing there is, there must be a decision. The young lady has to make her decision whether that's the young man she wants to be with and there has to be a decision made. You have to make it. She must, she must be the only woman in the world for the man, and he must be the only man. If it isn't, you made a wrong decision. And that's something It's making up a decision for, it's same way for making up a decision for Christ. Are you going to serve the world? Are you going to serve Christ? You have to make up your mind. But the decision has to be made. And then after the decision is made, then comes the engagement. You've got to make an engagement before this union can be. See, a pledge, an engagement, a love affair. And then the next thing, promises made. There has to be promises made one to another, like the promise, sweetheart, if you'll marry me, I'll promise I'll be loyal and true. I'll, I'll look upon no other woman, or I'll look upon no other man. And I'll do that all the days of, as a duty of my, I'll do, I'll do the duty as a wife. If we have children, I'll do the duty as a mother, a housekeeper. And all these promises has to be made or should be in a correct wedding. So then the same thing when you come to Christ. I love you. I'll be true to you. I'll serve you day and night. It's too bad we forget that. I'll serve you day and night, I'll fast, I'll pray, I'll be loyal to you, I'll bring my tithings into the storehouse, I'll pray many times a day, I'll do anything and I'll pledge all my love to you that, and that you should do and it should come from your heart. Now look, if you haven't got teeth and you, have, and you use false teeth, that's all right. But actually those teeth are not connected with you. It's not part of you. If you had an arm amputated and put a false arm on, well, that arm's actually not connected with you. It's just stuck on, see? It's not connected with you. And when we take a pledge to Christ, if we don't become part of him, like a woman ought to become part of a man and a man part of the woman, then we're artificial Christians. You're not married to that woman. You might be loyal if you don't love your husband and him 60 or 70 years old and you don't love him as good as you did in the beginning then you're really just raising his children. And that's the way the churches are too many today. 
We're just taking the name of the Christian church, pretending to be the bride, when it's artificially we're not connected with Christ in any way. It's like an artificial tooth or an artificial arm or an artificial eye. See, it's something that's artificial we're just putting on. You can't put on Christianity. You've got to be connected with it. First is a decision, next engagement, then promise, then ceremony. And bride takes the bridegroom's name. She is no more than her own. She takes the bridegroom's name. And then, and then Christ injects his own spirit into his own spirit, his own life, and the Bible said, Adam and Eve, there you're no longer twain, but one. And when the woman, church, is married to Christ, they're no longer two, they're one. Christ in you, his life has to be brought into you. Then you become the bride, see? And until Christ injects himself by the baptism of the Holy Ghost into you, then you're connected with him. You're no then you're connected with him. You're no longer twain. You are one. Christ promised to be in us and the Father, as the Father was in Christ. Then, through the power of his resurrection, we are raised from the dead things of the world, sitting with him in heavenly places. I like that. Tonight, we're sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, resurrected with him, died to the things of the world, took on Christ, and when we took on Christ, then the world is dead. And when the word becomes prominent in you, see, it's you and Christ. If you abide in me, my word abide in you. You can ask what you will, but it's not you no more. It's his word, Christ in you. You become one. And after she's fulfilled her vows and took her marriage and took her husband's to be named, the bridegroom's name, then she's heir of everything he possesses. She's heir of everything. Your wife is heir of everything you possess. And that's what the church is. If she only knew it, the works that I do shall you do also. Greater than these shall you do, for I go to my father. But now if this, if when, excuse me, but now what if this woman gets married? She's heir to all he's got. Then she starts running around with other men. See, she's sharing her love with others. That's what too many Christians do, sharing your love with the world, playing, dancing, gambling, staying home from prayer meetings to watch television, all kinds of worldly things that took the place of the love of God in the church's heart. She's sharing her love. She'll take her tithings and that she should give to the church and she'll spend it on things out there in the world instead of loving God the way she should do, living for God, loving to come to church. You almost have to persuade her to come. Then he tells the story about a pastor friend of his who passed out pledge cards for his people to sign that they would come to Sunday school at least six months a year. And then he asked, but he said, Brother Branham and him were talking, and Brother Branham, he asked Brother Branham, how do you do it in your church to get the people to come? He says, we give them a pill. He says, pill? Yeah, he says, the gospel. And he says, and they, and they come. And then he says, and he told me that signing the pledge cards, I says, Dr. Brown, do you think that, and he, he talked about the time you remember the story when he went and while he was collecting bills for the utility company and he went to this door and this woman came to the door singing and listening to some guy on the radio and she was all hepped up with the music. Said she turned around and threw a kiss to the radio and told that guy, I'll see you tonight at the Greenbrier Patch. And, and, he said, and so he says, do you think that that Greenbrier Patch man would have to give a pledge card to that woman? He says, no way. He said, her spirit wants what he's giving. 
And he says, and that's the way it should be the Christian in the church. They want to come because their spirit wants what God is giving. So it says, until the church of the living God that's called the bride of Christ gets herself connected with God like that, she'll still wallow in the world in the miry clay of sin until she's connected with God in a way till her heart's so filled with glory and the power of God until she can't see anything but Christ. That's right. You've got to be born in, not shook in, not bring a letter in, but born in the church of the living God by regeneration, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That makes you a new creature. Amen. That straightens it up. That sure does. Amen. So he that overcometh, and so Brother Branham is emphasizing there are so many things that he in his power overcomes. People talk about, I came to the Lord and instantly I didn't want to smoke anymore. I didn't want to drink anymore. These, these things happen. That's the grace of God. But there are many things that he's going to let you push your own way through. Amen. So to him that overcometh. All right. Now we're, uh, now we're at verse 8. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the first death is the body, second death is the soul cast into the, to the lake of fire. Now that, that word fearful is only used two other times in all the New Testament. And that's in Matthew and Mark. Excuse me, and they're referring to the same incident. It's when the disciples were rowing across the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up and Jesus was asleep. And, and so then he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. And then they all marveled, What kind of man is this? That the storm, that's the only two, three places that this fearful is used here in Revelation and in the two stories of why are you fearful? And so when, when I read that, we have many storms of life as we go through life. And if we know that God's in the ship, then there should be no fear. It's when you feel like you've shut God out of your life, well, then you've got a right to be fearful. But when you know that you're trying your best to walk with God and stay with God, don't be fearful. He's in the ship. He can calm the storm anytime he wants to. He's just going to give you a little test. God loves to test, test his people. Amen. Verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, those there, when we... When you put a couple other scriptures together, as you'll see at the top of page four there, when you put a couple scriptures together, you can sort out who these angels are. And so let's look at Revelations 15, 6. Revelations 15, 6. And the same, excuse me, and the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Do you remember that the girded about the breast when we studied in Revelations chapter 1 depicted the Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and the gird about the breast indicated not priesthood but judge. I don't know whether you remember that or not. But so therefore we, the gird about the breast here represents 
standing in the office of judge. And the very fact that they're wearing white linen, 19.8 tells us, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So God doesn't have to dress the angels, literal angels, in fine linen. He dresses redeemed ones in fine linen, the righteousness of the saints. So then we find then these seven, seven angels are the seven church-age messengers who are going to be given the vials, the, the plagues to pour, pour, out, pour out the vials. And then it says, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so I'm going to show you the wife, and he, and he points to a city. Now, I'm a little bit baffled about that, but not a little bit baffled. There's a, like, like Schofield said, a mystery is something that's been hidden, unveiled, but yet with a mysterious part remaining. And so that's, that's that. So we're going to touch on it a little bit. <clears throat> Okay, let me get my notes squared away here. Okay, excuse me, I, I'm, I got ahead of myself a little bit up on here. I, I want to take you with overcoming just a little bit further here on the next, on there, Philadelphia Church Age. And Brother Branham is, has just read to the people as you've got printed out in your notes there, Revelations 3.12, to him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar, of course, as Brother Ram says, a pillar is attached to the foundation. So when you become a pillar, you're back standing on the solid ground of the foundation of the apostles and prophets again, because that's where the pillar mounts. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And so then this quote that we're going to read here is Brother Branham discussing that verse. It says, A pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write upon him the name of my God. Now, what's the name of God? Jesus. If you want to jot that down, we're getting a little late. Jesus, Ephesians 3.15 said, Heaven and earth, all families named Jesus. You see, all right. Now, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, I'll put it on him. Well, can you see? It's the same name. If you'd already caught it, see, I'll put on him the name of the city of my God, the city. He goes ahead and says, which is the New Jerusalem. See, the New Jerusalem, I'll put on him the New Jerusalem. Now, the bride or the church is the New Jerusalem. How many knows that? The church itself is the New Jerusalem. Now, you believe that? So, let's uh, one more place. So, yeah, excuse me. So he says, let's prove that by Revelation 21, which is the very thing that we're, we're uh, studying uh, right, right now. So we're... All right. Now, the, the fact that the New Jerusalem, on page 5 in your notes, the New Jerusalem is the Bride of Christ... There are other scriptures that take us in reference to us being a building, and that's what we've got printed out here. Re Ephesians 2.19, 1 
Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and the saints of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, here we're talking about, let's say, a spiritual building. But as we get further into the actual building of the building, the very same foundation that we're reading about here that we're built upon, the city is built upon. So you can see how Brother Branham said she is the city. Verse 21, Ephesians 2, 21, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also build it together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So here we are being built into that. Now I see some, many not looking at notes. Did we run out of notes tonight? We got them here? Okay. All right. We, we printed up. I don't, I'm never quite sure how many to print. Okay, next note, 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 1 Peter 2.5. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.18. For you are not come unto the mount that may, might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, darkness, tempest, and the sound of trumpet, and the voice of words which voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But... You are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we see already then that that the New Testament is bringing us into this being constructed into what we find in the New Testament is like the likened unto the New Jerusalem. And the similarities really don't stop there. And then verse, verse uh, 21, 11 says, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear, and crisp, clear as crystal, clear as crystal. And this Jasper, we know that Jasper was the birthstone of Reuben, who was the firstborn of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I'm not sure whether that has a significance all the way along here, but here the, uh, her light was likened unto Jasper. And then in verse 18, and the building of the wall, it was Jasper. And then in the middle of verse 19, the first foundation was Jasper. And so it's used often, this term, jasper. And I'm sure there's more depth to it than I'm understanding. So I don't have any more information than the fact that that was the birthstone of the firstborn. Now, these scriptures that we're going to read here relate to what we're going to get to in, in just a moment. And so kind of just kind of log these thoughts in your mind and then they'll they'll make more sense to you in a moment and this 
slide I'm going on to now, which you have printed on one slide in your uh, notes. The print was too small, and I expanded it to two slides on, on my presentation up here. You've got it all on one slide. So Exodus 28, 15, and thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment. And so we got there the breastplate. This is the breastplate of judgment that Aaron would wear as high priest. It is four square, and thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be sardis, topaz, and carbuncle. This shall be the first, second row, emerald, sapphire, diamond. Third row, ligure, agate, amethyst. Fourth row, beryl, onyx, jasper. They should be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of the signet, Every one with his name shall be according to the twelve tribes, continuing on the same thing now. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains at the ends of the wreath work of pure gold. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes in, in, in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually, and thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim. Now, Urim and Thummim is a puzzle to me, and thank God it was a puzzle to Brother Branham too, because he couldn't explain it either. But in this breastplate, you can see by the wording there, they're going to put in the breastplate the Urim and Thummim. So there's something separate about the Urim and Thummim. Some, some say the breastplate was the Urim and Thummim, but it isn't worded that way. You put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. But in describing it, they would take a dreamer of dreams or a prophet and bring him in to stand before this Urim and Thummim in the, holy place, in the uh, temple. And if he, he told his dream or his prophecy, and then like lights flashed through these uh, emeralds, then God received it and said, it's a true prophecy, it's a true dream. If nothing happened, then the, the God wasn't in the prophecy or wasn't in the dream. So the Urim and Thummim was something by which they judged truth. And they shall be upon the Aaron's heart, and when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually, Leviticus 8.8. 8. And he put the breastplate upon him also. He put in the breastplate the Urim and Thummim. So you see it's separate again. 1 Samuel 28, 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dream, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. And so we, we see this breastplate, and we're going to see how the breastplate ties with the New Jerusalem. And it's, a, to me, it's just a, a marvelous, marvelous thing. And so this breastplate now, just looking at it just a little bit, the ephod of the high priest, and then the New Testament, and uh, a New Testament comparison. <clears throat> so there were 12 precious stones, and then square in arrangement, and then three stones to a row of four rows, and then each stone represents a tribe, and on the breastplate 
It's on the breast of the high priest. And so in the New, New Jerusalem, as we'll read, as we keep reading, there are 12 stones, and the city is built foursquare, and there are three stones to, the, to a side of the four sides of the temple, and then each stone represents a tribe, and, it, and, there, on, and for Aaron, it was on, on his breast, but here it's on the walls of the city. So we begin to see a city that what Aaron carried on his rest, breast, where we'll be living in a city that's surrounded by that very thing. In, uh, let's, let's read a little bit more here now. Let's see. <clears throat> we're, in, we're in Revelation 21, 12 now. And had a, a wall great and high and had 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and the names written thereon which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, just what they had on the breastplate. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we, we talk about the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here's the whole city built on the foundation of the stones representing the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. He that talked with me. Okay, now who does John, me, represent? The end-time bride. And then he that talked with me was the prophet that came to John, which is, was a forerunner symbol of William Branham's ministry in the last day, okay? And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof, and the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height were equal. So when Brother Branham was preaching on the future home, he says, now notice the earth is, well, turn over into the book of Revelation. You can see how he measured it by cubits, by the furlongs, 2,300. So now we find out that the city is measured 1,500 miles square. You know how far that would reach? I measured it off this week. It would reach from Maine to Florida and from the eastern seaboard to 600 miles past west of the Mississippi. In other words, half of the United States and so here, Brother Branham, in his role, fulfilling a role, he took the time to measure the city exactly, to me, fulfilling Scripture. The same way that we found in the Scripture, uh, we had an angel standing in the sun, and Brother Branham had a role where he was an angel standing in the sun. And so the, these things just keep repeating. They have to because Scripture is being fulfilled in our midst. So when it said the length and the breadth and the height were the same. And so upon this, upon this earth, if you go into the uh, web, you'll find almost always uh, taking these things, the length and the height are equal four square. 
and they, they, they put some kind of a building like a cube upon, upon the top up there. But, it, it, but the four square was not a cube, it is a pyramid shape, because in a pyramid shape, the length and the breadth and the height are the same. And so I found several, I found just one or two drawings on the web that did have a uh, pyramid-shaped semblance of a city sticking up there, but they all had that possibly copyrighted note on there, so I, I was afraid to use it. But anyway, this gives you, gives you the idea anyway. And when I, when I drew one quite some time ago myself, and took the 1,500 miles big and then drew it to scale, to scale on, on the size of the earth. The sides of it come down just nicely onto the curvature of the earth. So as you were coming up over the curvature of the earth, you'd just go right on up. You'd scarcely notice. It's not like a big wart sticking out on the, on the side. It actually just follows the curvature of the earth. It just continues right on up. <clears throat> And then Larkin, he, he drew it uh, this way. You've seen this drawing before. This was the way he depicted the city, again, in more, somewhat of a pyramid shape. <clears throat> Isaiah 65, 25, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like a bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. I've never seen a cube-shaped mountain. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, now we're still lingering somewhat on the breastplate and stuff because it, 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 it so beautifully ties to the New Jerusalem. Exodus 28, 30, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Leviticus 8, 8. And he put the breastplate upon him, and also he put in the breastplate the Urim and Thummim. And then Numbers 27, 21. And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord, at his word shall they go out, and at the word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with them. So the Urim and Thummim is that which testifies of truth or God's not in it. And as Brother Branham repeated over and over and over, he says the Old Testament, they had the, the, uh, the Urim and Thummim. He says in the New Testament, we've got the word of God. That, that's our Urim and Thummim. We check for the truth there. But in Deuteronomy 33.8, And of Levi, he said, Let thy Thummim and Urim be with the Holy One whom thou didst prove at Massah, and with whom thou didst strive at the waters of Meribah. 1 Samuel 28.6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Ezekiel 2.63, and the Tershatha, which is the governor, said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. So we see this continually repeated, standing, knowing truth by the Urim and Thummim. And the Tershatha said unto them that they should not... Excuse me, we already got that. So now, in here, we've got the Exodus. Here's now, here comes our breastplate... That the, that the priest was going to wear. 
And here comes the, the way the city is to be built. And we, I just took the stones and ran them back and forth there. This didn't do it. I actually had them in movement, but this jumped them all on at once here. And what it is, is about two stones that none of the Bible uh, dictionaries could identify. But all the others were identifiable as being the very same stones on the breastplate is the very same stones that the new Jerusalem is built on. So consequently, the city we are going to, the foundation itself, is absolute truth. And that's the place where we're going to live, where God has made a way for us. So a city with foundations, the very source of determining truth in the Old Testament was the Urim Thummim. In the New Testament, our Urim Thummim is the word of God. And, and, and that is based on the doctrines of the apostles and prophets. And we see here the entire city built on the very word foundation, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So there's the place we're going. The way it's garnished and the way it's foundation is the very same thing that we spiritually are being built into right now and why it's so wonderful that we had an Elijah ministry that take us back to the faith of the fathers, back to the foundation stones of the apostles. God bless you, saints. Let's have a word of prayer. Musicians and Brother Tommy, you can come up. Lord Jesus, I just can't do justice for the beauty of that city and everything that you've described. I cannot even imagine transparent gold in the walls, transparent gold in the streets. Uh, I can't fathom that, but yet it said it's solid gold. And when we look at the semblance in the Old Testament of Solomon's temple, it was plated with gold, which would give the semblance of God. But here, the New Jerusalem is solid gold, which is all God, because you are always typed as gold. God, beyond understanding, but the part I do understand, I sure love it. And I thank you for the invitation you've sent us to be part of the dwellers of that city. In Jesus' name, amen.